The baseball buffet has started. Step up to the plate and get in the buffet line. Take me out to the ball game. Take me out with the crowd. Buy me some peanuts and crackers, Jack. I don't care if I never get back. Let me root, root, root for the home team. If they don't win, it's a shame. For it's one, two, three strikes. You're out at the old ball game. Welcome to Baseball Buffet, our monthly roundtable focusing on recent baseball events. We will work our conversation in and around our luncheon at the Zoom Cafe, our online meeting space where we shelter in place. Today we offer our 2021 Hall of Fame predictions as well as our own personal choices. Will this be the year the steroid boys, Bonds and Clemens, finally break into the Hall of Fame? Next we will look at MLB's decision to include the Negro Leagues as part of Major League Baseball. What are the implications for baseball and its history? Something we all treasure. We will end our day Zoom dining with our last bites. Our buffet of baseball commentators include... Andy Jeffione. Award-winning photographer and former image master of the Chicago Cubs. Chuck Hildebrandt. Award-winning baseball researcher and chair emeritus of Sabres Baseball and the Media Research Committee. Stuart Shea. Author of Wrigley Field, The Long Life and Contentious Times of the Friendly Confines. I'm your host, Jim Walker, author of Crack of the Bat, A History of Baseball on the Radio. Our good friend and baseball buffet regular, Tom Henninger, is working hard to get the next issue of Baseball Digest out. He'll be back next month. Let's start by getting everyone's predictions for the 2021 Hall of Fame class. Who gets in? I got my little score sheet here. I'm going to start with Stu. I got the names all in front of me. Tell me who to check. I think Kurt Schilling will make it. I think he's the only guy this time who will. All right. Chuck. I don't think anyone gets in this time. Nobody. Zero. All right. Uh, Andy. Yeah, I think, Goose wow. I think uh, the door is going to open for our, our steroid friends. So I think Bonds, Clemens, and Schilling are going to get in. Just quickly, why do we think it's going to be such a small class? I'll just give that to each of you. Start with Chuck, since you, you have zero. Well, I think people are still super mad about steroids. As far as they're concerned, that's still the biggest sin against the game. Omar Vizquel's feet turned to clay a couple of months ago with the allegations of spousal abuse against him. And uh, Kurt Schilling, is, I think he's probably tweeted his way out of the hall. I think possibly the one most likely to sneak in is Scott Rowland. Mm-hmm. If people were to move their votes from the others who they don't want to vote for to him. But I, I still think he's a dark horse. Okay. So I think nobody. Okay, Andy, I'll flip to you because you were the most optimistic. I feel like with the uncertainty of the past year, people's heads are all over the place. And the softening of the steroid era, I think, is just kind of a a reflection of that. I think there's so many other things going on now. Kind of that PD era is starting to become a little bit more palpable. So I think there's going to be the opening of, of Bonds, Clemens, and then even shilling. Stu, why do you think it's only going to be shilling? As you can see from looking at publicly available ballots, there are a lot of people out there who were completely unafraid to state their opposition to Bonds and Clemens. And I believe that the people who do not share their ballots publicly are going to be even more loath to vote for Bonds and Clemens and more likely to vote for shilling. And another possible guy is Todd Helton, who mm. I think could kind of sneak in if enough people said we got to vote for somebody. Right. If not this time, then the next. I don't think Helton's a Hall of Famer, but I'd certainly rather see him in there than Kurt Schilling. 
But I think Wagner's going to come really close, Billy Wagner. He's going to get a, an uptake. There are a lot of people who are voting for him. I think he certainly deserves to be in, too. Do you? Wagner yes, I do. He's one of the most effective run preventers in uh, relief pitching history. Oh, I get a choice, too, and I'm going to say uh, I'm going to be with the optimists here. I'm actually going to say I think three people have a shot to get in this year, and I'm going to say it's going to be Bonds, Clemens, and Roland. Maybe I'm just giving the people that I want to get in (laughs) rather than the people who will. Hey, that's that's what the voters vote for. They vote for the people they want in. That's true. That's true. Okay, we'll review the accuracy of our predictions on our next baseball buffet, if I remember to do it. Uh, (laughs) Now to more philosophical questions. Who should get in and why? Chuck, who should go in this year and who shouldn't and why? Well, if I have a vote, I vote for Bonds, Clemens, Roland, Wagner, and Manny Ramirez, guy who hit you know 555 homers and a 312 batting average, is 2500 plus hits, 154 OPS plus. I, he definitely has the numbers to get in. Those are the guys I would put in right now. Kurt Schilling had a Hall of Fame career on the field, but you know there's a lot of externalities that are attached to him, and so I think he's a problematic choice at best. I think enough writers will opt not to vote for Schilling that he won't get in this year. He has one more year after this year. Is that correct? I believe so he does. He's, yeah. Yeah. Andy? I lean toward the small hall myself and have been questioning the relevance of annual voting, especially with the addition of alternate Hall of Fame committees. And while looking at the current class of candidates' careers, there can be an argument for this person and that person under this circumstance and that circumstance, but there are no real standouts for me. I also couldn't be more conflicted with Kurt Schilling. He was a damn good pitcher in his 20-year career, particularly in big games. He's one of 18 pitchers with 3,000 or more strikeouts. You all know his career. I read something that he could possibly be the most valuable starting pitcher in the LCS era. Completely Hall of Fame worthy. But how do you evaluate this person? It reminded me of something I read from a baseball executive about Barry Bonds. He was asked... Do you think Bonds was a Hall of Fame player? Sure I do, but I would never vote for him. I can't stand the thought of him giving that speech and being celebrated in Cooperstown. He doesn't deserve that. I suppose that's it. It's about that word, deserve. Which brings me to the rule five of Hall of Fame elections. Voting shall be based upon the player's record, playing ability, integrity, sportsmanship, character, and contributions to the team on which the player played. But what about after his career? Can you only look at the player's playing days and his contributions to the game without being influenced by other factors? It seems impossible. Maybe going further with analytics playing a larger role in the game, an algorithm can be created to generate each new Hall of Fame class based solely on numbers and give our beloved Graham the master of ceremonies duties. (laughs) I agree with you. (laughs) Poor Graham. I I, I agree with you that Schilling definitely has the numbers. His wins above replacement is somewhere in the neighborhood of 80. But beyond that, He's also on the short list of pitchers that you would ask to win a game with your life on the line. Right. There's not that many pitchers on that list, and I think he's definitely on that. Stu? 
I know. If I had a ballot, <laughs> if I had a ballot, which I never if will. If I had a ballot, ballot in the morning, ballot in the morning, all over this land, <laughs> I'd hammer somebody. Um, I will never have a ballot, but if I did, three names would be on it: uh, Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens, and Scott Rowland are for mm-hmm. me sure things. Andrew Jones is a tough one, mm-hmm. right on what I call the Santo Boyer line. His defense in center field looks to be as good as anybody's ever, and he was a productive hitter for several years. I find Jones's uh, short career and his off-field issues yeah. to be really problematic. Yeah, yeah. and I can't. Right, but he, even without considering his off-field issues, he had a really pretty short peak. He did. Uh, short it was career, it was so. an, it was an amazing peak, but mm-hmm. a short career. And right. you look at his denouement of his career, and mm-hmm. you have to sort of think that he, in some ways, belongs with the next group of guys who I can't advocate, which would be Sheffield, Ramirez, and Sosa. What those guys have in common is that there were fearsome sluggers who played terrible defense. Ramirez was the greatest hitter among them, as Chuck pointed mm-hmm. out, but I think right. it's fair to ask whether any of them would have been immortals without PEDs. And I think it's also fully appropriate that 500 homers no longer be thought of as an automatic entry point to the Hall of Fame. Absolutely. Well, he does have 555. It's yes. It's not like 501. But, that's, but that's know, does that mean you're going to elect Raphael Palmero? Right. You know? I, mean, I, actually, standard I comes actually think from a, like a his very, case a lot. Standard <laughs> comes from, the standard <laughs> comes some... from a very different time, though. Right, the standard right. of 500 homers, it's like 3,000 hits, too. The standards point. come from a very different time and a very different game. Mm-hmm. You know, Absolutely. if we're going to start saying pitchers can't get in until they've won 300 games, we'll never have another pitcher in the Hall yeah. of Fame. So hitting standards have to change as well. Well, I'm, I'm not convinced that PEDs, what they call performance-enhancing drugs, is even proven to make a player a better baseball player. I know it makes them more impervious to injury, makes them a little bigger and maybe a little stronger, but I don't think that necessarily translates to being a better baseball player. And so we could have a whole discussion about that. Right, but right, for sure. To me, that's why I don't really think of PEDs as a disqualifier. Just right, a, okay. Understood. I don't think and, it yeah, and I'm not saying it's the only disqualifier. I mean, if you look at Sosa, Ramirez, and Sheffield, these are three guys who come with a lot of interpersonal baggage. They're right. guys who come with a lot of defensive problems. Where the hell do you hide a guy like that in the lineup? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. you have to wonder about their performance, whether it was enhanced or not. To me, that's enough strikes against voting for their candidacies. Well, you know, if you're going to talk about baggage or off-field issues and lack of defense, you can look at Ted Williams. I mean, there's a guy Good who point. had wow. all of that. Well, right, the so. sports writers certainly hated Ted Williams. That's true. Um, but I don't know if his teammates hated him. I don't know if he was a tough guy to play with. Is that the benchmark that your teammates hate, hate you? Because that takes Barry Bonds out of the equation. Right. That's no, sure. I'm just saying that, that Ted Williams was disliked by the writers, but I don't know that he was disliked by his teammates. Right. And he also did a, a fair amount of charitable work, and I think that's been acknowledged by lots of people, too. So there was a, certainly a side of him that we don't necessarily see in any of the, the folks that we're talking about oh, now. Sure. But that's, a, that's also, a different issue. He was also the first person to advocate for putting black players in the Hall of Fame. Yeah. And he yeah. did it at his own induction. He used his induction speech to do that. Interesting. Yeah, yeah he definitely did do God's work on that one. Yeah. All right. Well, let's talk about these other issues because they're clearly coming up uh, for all of you and, and anybody jump in and we'll, we'll hear from everyone. What factors beyond simply their performance as player should the Hall of Fame take into account in inducting new members? And I'm not talking about what's in the rule books because people interpret the rule books as they want. And ultimately, it comes down to a personal judgment by each of these baseball writers what they want to do. So if you were one of those baseball writers, what would you take into account, regardless of what the, the actual document says? 
Well, voting, as Andy said, Rule 5 says voting shall be based on the player's record, playing ability, integrity, sportsmanship, character, and contributions to the teams on which the player played. Mm-hmm. So character clearly matters. I mean, it's it's in there from the very beginning. <clears throat> I think the use of PEDs is a problem. I think it has to be considered by a voter, but I don't believe it's a disqualifier in itself because we have guys already in the Hall of Fame who are PED users. Right. It's yeah. not, in my opinion, taking PEDs is not, to me, as serious as gambling on your own team or throwing a game. I think those t- things are and should be disqualifiers. And I'm pretty sure the throwing a game isn't as serious as defaulting on a $73 million business loan from the state of Rhode Island. Part in the scheme to build people out of money to pay for Donald Trump's wall or using one's platform to advocate the murder of journalists and the overthrow of the duly elected United States government. I think those things are pretty good disqualifiers. (laughs) I'm not a person who typically thinks anything beyond on the field performance at a dominant level with a sprinkling of off the field baseball oriented fame as an enhancer, by which I mean, you know, decades in a broadcast booth or catchy nickname like Big Poison, Little Poison, that kind of fame. I think that's defensible. But beyond those two, I don't really advocate a character clause necessarily. By the same token, I do think it's fair for a voter to disqualify a candidate who routinely and unapologetically violates a basic human moral code or advocates, supports, or excuses violence and bloodshed. If someone wants to withhold their vote for someone on that basis, I think that's perfectly fine. I think it just has to satisfy some minimum benchmark of heinousness on some global scale. Yeah, and that's where it gets tricky. This evaluation of one's personality and character, it's like who becomes the moral police? I mean, yes, there are things that become crystal clear that like this is egregious, but there's these slippery slopes. This landscape of social media has added this other layer of You think you know someone, and it's really what is it that they're projecting being put out on social media. We'll take a break and send our Hall of Fame boats right out today, and they will be completely (laughs) and rightfully ignored. Back in a flash. Just a quick reminder that Baseball Buffet is available in most top podcast providers, including Apple iTunes, Google Play, and many more. Amazon Echo users can access our podcast lickety-split. Just say, Alexa, play Baseball Buffet on iTunes. On December 16, 2020, Major League Baseball announced that the Negro Leagues will now be recognized as Major Leagues to correct a long-time oversight in the game's history. Andy, why is this important? So many, so many reasons. It allows Negro League stats to be included in careers for players who also played in the majors. It could also assist in players who have come up short for Hall of Fame consideration, like a mini Minoso. Not to mention the biggest takeaway, which is Major League Baseball's acknowledgement that these teams were equal, if not better at times, than the restricted Major League. It will also help Major League Baseball to shed light on the history of the Negro Leagues and its players, opening the doors to thousands of stories many fans have been unaware of, particularly young people who might not even know the leagues existed. 
Stu, why did this take so long? Well, it's a new idea to me, this notion of making the three Negro Leagues into, quote, major leagues, unquote. It just hasn't seemed to be in the previous conversations about issues involving African-Americans in baseball. The reaction to a spate of killings of unarmed African-Americans has provided an issue that the sports leagues now feel responsible to deal with. We probably won't ever know the internal intrigue around this and how all the key players interacted. What was the inflection point? Who supported what? Who objected to what? Who led the effort? What projects will be part of the initiative? Which ones didn't make it through committee? A gesture like this also has an advantage of being about the past rather than as a way to address current issues or prepare for the future. But I assume that somebody got Rob Manfred's ear at a critical time in American history. It was a surprising thing to say Manfred say Black Lives Matter to see 30 GMs holding up signs on a Zoom call reading that Black Lives Matter, those things were all fairly shocking to me coming from baseball. And this is not to say that I think baseball's embrace of the movement was fully supported in the game or that it was done entirely because it was the right thing to do or that it really fixes any problems on its own. There's a long, long way to go here. But this is, at least symbolically, an important step at inclusion. Chuck, what about those record books? Everybody is in a tizzy now because suddenly a whole bunch of records that weren't as carefully monitored, not that all major league records were perfectly monitored either, but that the Negro League records are certainly spottier, uh, incomplete, and so forth. And how does this affect our hallowed record book of Major League Baseball? Right. So the long overdue move to recognize the top Negro Leagues have brought some attention to the work of the guys at Seamheads.com who've been working on creating a database of documented Negro League statistics for the past couple of decades or so. Even so, as you mentioned, uh, it's pretty well accepted that the record-keeping by those leagues were not as airtight as uh, by the white minor leagues, mainly because they didn't enjoy the same kind of support system for their venture that so-called organized baseball did. Even so, again, as you mentioned, even the white leagues didn't have completely airtight record-keeping either. Every year, RetroSheet changes hundreds or even thousands of yeah. plays in its database because of new information that's uncovered through research. I myself account for maybe five or 10 of those changes a year while I'm corroborating plays from my annual Little League Home Runs database update. Mm-hmm. So given that uh, baseball's recorded past is to some degree still a work in progress, I think we'll see better integration of the Negro League's records into the MLB records over the next several years. Do any of us think that there's going to be a dramatic change in some hallowed record, number of RBIs in a season, yeah. number of home runs in a season, batting average in a season, sure these things possible. that are ingrained well, probably not, in our mind. Probably not so much in accounting stats because they have much shorter seasons. Their seasons were maybe right. 60, 70 games, which leads to the issue of do we recognize the rate stats, like the batting average, as being at the same level right. of importance as a 162-game season? I know there's a, one of the players had a batting average that I think was higher than the highest batting average recorded in the white right. league. And I, I don't have that information at my disposal at the moment, but that's, you know, he did it uh, the, the, in the Negro leagues. Whoever did it, did it in some 60 games instead of 150 games. So, mm-hmm. right. I mean, how do we square that circle? This is for everyone. Uh, what are the implications of our understanding of major league baseball history based on this change? My feeling is that since we have relatively small amounts of information on actual league games in the ECL, the NNL, or the NAL, I think part of our understanding of black baseball is going to have to be oral rather than statistical Mm -hmm. in nature, and that requires a different kind of record-keeping. 
And I don't know how MLB plans to tell these kind of stories. Most of us have a very limited idea of what the Negro Leagues game looked like or felt like. We don't know what the parks were like, except that they were usually substandard. Were black pitchers used like white pitchers in the 20s? Did black managers platoon? This is the kind of understanding we need to have. We need to know how badly the Negro Leagues were hurt by World War II, about how the game was reported, about the strategies used, the style of play. And I think we need to read a lot more about the annual All-Star Games of the 30s and 40s. Those games attracted the elite of African-American cultural and athletic life. And they were, in that community, their World Series, their Super Bowl, their everything. Right, right. And that's an, that's an issue of record keeping. But not only that, there's probably about a thousand times more video and audio of major league games and players than there are of Negro Leaguers and games. So there's no audio or video of Negro League games. Right. So I think it's still going to occupy this sort of like mythical status rooted in storytelling or even tall tales yeah. you know, than in documented history. Right. Even as late coming as this statement was, it mm-hmm. was made and it's acknowledged And it's important that it was acknowledged. Mm -hmm. And it's important that it's an opening for dialogue about race and about Mm -hmm. the ever-present place in history and that baseball is trying to recognize. And that the game's history was incomplete without including these players, these stories. And I hate to be cynical, but this overdue statement can come off as a big PR pat on the back for Major League Baseball during a climate where race relations are hot topics. Mm -hmm. Um, But if it helps get attention for the Negro Leagues and for the Negro League Museum, then uh, let's hope that the good outweighs. I'd hate to see Major League Baseball start rolling out all the Negro League merchandise and not remember Mm -hmm. the important part of what this means. Yeah, I, I agree with a lot of what you say, Andy. I mean, as overdue as a recognition of the level of Negro League play was, I think one of the issues or, or maybe problem with recognizing the Negro Leagues as being a major league is that the black ball players were not absent from organized ball by some accident of history. They were right. systematically excluded by organized Absolutely. ball from Cap right. Anson through Kennesaw Landis and everybody right. in between. between. We can accept the quality of play by the best teams and players as being major league caliber, but calling the leagues themselves major leagues reeks of organized ball absolving themselves of its sin. Oh, hey, look, right. they were right. always major leagues just like we were, except no, they really weren't. Yeah. They didn't Precisely. enjoy any of the privileges of major league at the time. And baseball just waving their magic wand and conferring major league status on them retroactively won't even come right. close to fixing that part right. of it. It just looks like a business decision to appeal to the African-American market, which baseball sorely behind every other yes. American major sport. In. So I guess we're going to go ahead and call the Negro leagues major leagues, but let's also recognize how too little too late the gesture really is. Finally, we take our last bites. Each of our baseball buffs will offer one last delicious morsel. Chuck, what's your last bite? Well, it looks like tough times are finally coming to the north side. For years, the Chicago Cubs traded on the whole lovable loser image, courtesy of a Budweiser-soaked Harry Carey, calling (laughs) weekday ball games from the friendly confines of Wrigley Field on WGN-TV. It didn't matter that the team was owned by the TV station media conglomerate, and it mattered even less that the Cubs made the playoffs basically once in a half a century. Every summer afternoon, there was a party, one that we wanted to watch and be a part of every day, and the losing made them seem that much more lovable. Then the Ricketts family bought the team and promised a winner, and they delivered the winner one year. Then the Ricketts went to town. They raised ticket prices substantially, overhauled Wrigley Field to maximize game day revenue, 
turned half of charming Wrigleyville into a disnified Ricketsville and made their ultra right wing politics very public to a divided nation. The fans grumbled at all of it, but as long as the Cubs were fielding contenders, the fans went along with it. Now the worm is turning and the division defending Cubs have decided they aren't going to try to compete for another title this year. So they let one of their big sluggers of the future walk away, traded their Cy Young level pitcher and his catcher, and let the market know that any and all of the rest of their good players are available, perhaps for the same pennies on the dollars you Darvish was let go for. They even let their well-liked TV play-by-play man defect to (gasps) the (gasps) South Side. (sighs) Fans are clearly revolting at the news, and the Cubs have already pushed back their season ticket holder deadline twice, and the demand for their product collapses at the same rate as the team's quality on the field. It has become clear as crystal that the era of the lovable Cubs is over. Stu? Well, Tommy Lasorda died last week at age 93. The man won world championships. He sold Dodger baseball better than anybody, and he was the kind of personality that kept even the casual fans interested. He understood his job. I had a few short experiences with him in my long-ago reporting days. Perhaps my full Tommy encounter came in the visiting manager's office between the games of a Dodger-Cubs doubleheader at Wrigley Field. While eight or nine of us asked him about the game that the Dodgers had just lost, Tommy was busy attacking two large Connie's pizzas and a full bucket of Kentucky Fried Chicken, uh, licking his fingers after every bite. And yes, this was when he was still doing commercials for Slim Fast. <laughs> of course. <laughs> I thought a food-oriented last bite would be appropriate. Absolutely. <laughs> That's brilliant. Andy? 29-year-old Bianca Smith says a career in baseball was the furthest thing from her mind when she decided to attend Dartmouth. I initially wanted to be a veterinarian, but I took that one biology class and decided it wasn't for me, so I started searching. I knew I loved sports, and I loved baseball. While at Dartmouth, she started working for the baseball team. It was there that she would become a varsity outfielder for their softball team and also the only woman on the Dartmouth baseball team. After Dartmouth, she would pursue a master's degree in baseball administration in sports management and a law degree at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, where her goal then was to become a general manager in baseball. Smith would go on to spend four seasons as director of baseball operations at CWRU, where Amy Backus, the first female athletic director, said of Smith, she raised the level of the baseball program, including using technology to assist the players. After graduation, Smith spent the next couple of years interning with major league clubs, Texas Rangers and Cincinnati Reds. Between those internships, she was an assistant coach with the University of Dallas. She also spent a year in the commissioner's office. After her internship in Cincinnati, she needed to find yet another challenge and apply it as an assistant athletic director at Carroll University, a small Division three school in Wisconsin. Their mascot, the Pioneers, it was Kismet. About a year into her job with Carroll University, Smith received an email from the Boston Red Sox. I was pretty shocked to get the email. They just saw my resume, thought I'd be a good candidate to just talk to. From there, she spoke to several different departments, scouting, analytics, and player development. She communicated with the Red Sox over the next few weeks, and it quickly developed into an offer that she would accept just as quickly in late December. The hire is historic and ironic. The Red Sox were the last major league team to integrate in 1959 and will become the first to hire a black woman to coach professional baseball. 
Bianca will join the organization in February for spring training at the Red Sox minor league affiliate in Fort Myers, Florida. Congratulations, Bianca. Oh, these last bites were so yummy for the tummy. However, for now, baseball buffet must close down. We will revisit it next month when we grab a fresh plate. By then, Kirk Schilling might have been elected to the Hall of Fame. No. 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 